Today's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit which lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is God's word. Father, here is rich truth about you, about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit within us. Rich truth that we need to understand uh, in order to live for you. So Father, please, this evening, would you set our minds on the things of the spirit that he desires? Would you once again well up within us the delight in being sons and daughters of the living God? Would you give us understanding into these things, even if we're not yet Christians, so we understand how wonderful it is to know you as Father, and therefore we would indeed live for you. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most striking phrases I remember reading as a young Christian, it brought me up short and it made me think uh, for days and and weeks afterwards, was a very short phrase by uh, the 17th century writer uh, and preacher in this country, John Owen. It's a very simple phrase, but quite generally you want to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
a strong phrase. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And yet there's something about that which is deeply biblical. If you look into the middle of our passage that Tim kindly read, chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Be killing sin by the Spirit, or it'll kill you. There's something very realistic and true about that. An inevitable mark of the Christian life is change, progress towards maturity. You should expect that. You should see that over time within your own life. Because God is at work in the believer to transform and change them. So what we have tonight is well, encouragement to run with that. We'll see how that works in practice, but encouragement to run with that. Put to death misdeeds of the body. Change how you live. Rub them out. Get rid of them. Kill. Kill off your sin. That's what you'll do if you're a Christian, Paul will tell us. No ambivalence, I'm afraid. I don't know what mood you've wandered in here tonight, but there is no ambivalence in regard to Romans chapter 8. It isn't, well, it was all right tonight, wasn't it? No, no. Kill. This is a call to go to war and fight your sin. Uh, give me a, a sorry, weaker example if I, uh, it maybe it'll work for you. In, in the winter this year, uh, just before Christmas, we discovered that our house uh, had uh, been invaded and infested with moths. Now, moths are not the most terrifying creatures, I'll admit. Very few people here, I would imagine, have nightmares about the moths are coming for me. But they do destroy your clothes. And so we discovered just before Christmas, you just get out the winter coats and, oh, hole, hole, hole. I had to get out my uh, dinner jacket for something, and it looked like someone had taken a shotgun to the back of it. You know, a dozen of holes where these monsters, mm, lovely, very much, mm, and jumped into it. Jumpers at the back of the cupboard, you get them out for winter, ripped apart by these moles. Miserable creatures. Moles? <laughs> Moths? Just seeing if you're with me. Um, now, my wife, my wife, Kerry, decided, I've, enough's enough, I've had enough, I'm going to war on the moths. And so she did. Every, everything, almost everything in the house, me included, got washed and um, dry cleaned as appropriate. And then every garment of any woolen mixture was then shoved in the freezer for 48 hours. It was slightly disconcerting. I'd be home alone, what's in the freezer? Pizza or something? No, a bag of frozen peas, a scarf and some jumpers. Brilliant. <laughs> Because that's the way you kill them off. Every cupboard now in, in the whole of our, our house has got these purple chemical things that you know, pump out chemicals. I'm sure they're very unhealthy. But anyway, to try and kill these moths. And now at the moment, it's mating season if you're a moth. If you knew such days of mating, what you discover. And so now every night, every night, the same ritual goes. There's a sort of fumigation of this lemongrass spray, sort of sprayed round all the cupboards up it's in, the, uh, in the bedroom. So I go to bed, it's like a concert. There's this dry ice rising everywhere. It's just a fumigation. My wife has taken this moth problem very, very seriously. Paulie said, kill. Yet be slightly obsessed. Be obsessed to the point where people think perhaps it's slightly odd. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Kill off your sin.
We're talking tonight about the supernatural power of God by his spirit. It's not just behavioural techniques. The supernatural power of God by his spirit to change the Christian from within. Radical change. But we cooperate with that. We put to death the misdeeds of the body. Uh, if you're joining us tonight, we're in Romans uh, 5 to 8. We've been uh, here for, in one sense, the bulk of this term, uh, off and on. And um, we said all along that this section, chapters 5 to chapter 8, the dominant theme is really of assurance. God will take the believers to heaven. That's what it means to live under grace. And so even here in chapter 8, chapter 8 begins, uh, no condemnation. And it finishes off by the time you get to uh, the end of the chapter, verse 38 and 39, no separation. Verse 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation for the Christian. No separation. You can be certain that you'll make it to heaven. But really, essentially, the chapter deals with two main issues. One, what about sin within? I get so discouraged by that. And then secondly, we'll look at over the next couple of weeks, suffering without that comes upon us. What about those two things which seem to... I don't know, uh, they're damaging me, they're damaging my Christian life. I'm not sure, am I going to make it? Yes, you will, by God's power at work within you. This section tonight then, really, it's dominated by the work of the Spirit, helping believers to battle against sin. Verses 1 to 17 that uh, Tim read for us, 15 times God's Spirit is mentioned, only four times in the rest of the chapter. This is, what we've had read tonight, one of the densest passages on the work of God's Spirit in the whole of the New Testament. Okay? Here's what he does, one of the key things that he does, helps Christians change, be transformed. So we're going to look at it like this. There's a statement, a purpose, and implication. It goes like this. The statement, verses 1 to 3, you've been set free. That's the statement, verses 1 to 3, you've been set free. Purpose, that's verses 4 to 11, to live by the Spirit. Implication, 12 to 17, so you'll kill your sin. What is one sentence? You've been set free to live by the Spirit, so you'll kill your sin. But that's how we're going to break it through. First then, verses 1 to 3, here's the statement, you've been set free. If you're a Christian, this is what has taken place in your life. You've been set free, verses 1 to 3. Let me read it again, verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. In one sense, it's the banner over the chapter. It's the key for Christian living. No condemnation. The verdict of the future. When, at some point in the future, you stand before the Lord, and he's, uh, the, the verdict of him upon your life has already been given to you. Not condemned. Loved. That's the verdict upon your life if you're a Christian and trusted in Christ. Not condemned. And you want to live your life in confidence that you have that verdict now. Uh, some friends of ours have <clears throat> had a wretched, well, nigh on two years. Uh, they're in their 50s. Their, their daughter in uh, her uh, late teens. Um, for the last two years, they've been awaiting her trial. You don't need to have details. But anyway, for, uh, uh, for various issues. And uh, she's come to trial once, and it was postponed, because not all evidence was there. 
came to trial a second time. It was postponed again. And finally, in the last few weeks, it's come to trial. And she, uh, the verdict came, uh, and the week just gone. So we saw him on uh, Thursday. The verdict's come. She's free. She's free. Innocent. Away you go from the courtroom. For nigh on two years, that trial has awaited them. Now, their daughter's been at home and living with them, and in one sense, all is fine and all is well, and how are you, and good, and they relate, and things are normal. Uh, and yet that trial just loomed in the future. So even though they, it was well, and they went about their lives, it's just, it's just there. Now, emotionally, they are in a completely different place. Because it's in the past. The verdict's been given. There's no uncertainty. And Paul would say to a Christian, don't, don't live as if, you're, as if you're out on bail. As if there's a trial still to come and you're a little uncertain. And oh, What's it going to be like and how's that going to go? No. It's done. You're free. The verdict of the future, you have that verdict now upon your life. Not condemned. You want to live. That's so liberating emotionally. Spiritually, it's incredibly liberating to know that. You're not condemned. Free. Now, how has that happened? Verse 2. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Through or in, perhaps a better translation, Christ Jesus, the principle or, or, or the operation of the spirit of life, of life has set me free from the law. Now we saw in one sense in chapter 3, if you were here, God's law, the law of sin and death as it's called here, God's law is external to everyone naturally. And it condemns us, even though it's good. 30 miles an hour is the uh, speeding limit in a built-up area. That's a good law. It's a good law. We understand why that's there. We understand it's there to protect people, so no one's lives are at risk. It's a good law. You can recognise it's a good law, but if you do 50 miles an hour through a, a little village, you're condemned. The law has condemned you. The law becomes one of sin and death to you, as it were, in Paul's language. Naturally, every single one of us sees God's law and doesn't keep it. So it becomes to us a law of sin and death. We're under the condemnation of sin and death. But when you're a Christian, it changes. So whereas the Old Testament Mosaic law had kept you under the realm of sin and death, when you are in Christ Jesus, you're set free. How does that happen? Verse 3. What the law, the Mosaic law, Old Testament law, what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, nothing wrong with the law, but sinful people can't do it. God did. God did it. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Jesus dealt with it. This is a slightly unfair illustration, but let me run with it. Um, when I, whatever, 15 years ago, married my wife, uh, Kerry, she had racked up considerable debts, uh, mainly at university and then at law school. You know, she, you know, just had to pay for her studies and also had quite a good time. Uh, and so I'd racked up um, quite a lot of debt. By contrast, I was 
a little bit square, so didn't have a good time, and also had been in work for a few years, and so managed to save a bit of money. What happened when we married? It was a slightly odd figure. I proposed to her, and she said, oh, that's fabulous, you're great. Oh, now I need to tell you how much money I owe. Because um, she did owe quite a lot. And when, when, at that point, she was under the law of Lloyd's Bank. <laughs> she owed a debt to Lloyd's Bank. When we married, our financial matters merged. I took on her debts. She took on my credit. Because she was united to me. The debt to Lloyd's Bank, the condemnation to Lloyd's Bank, I dealt with that. And she got credit to her account. That is completely unfair because for the rest of our lives that's not how it's operated and she'd be very keen to that I pointed that out to you. Um, when I was at theological college she paid for everything. But when we married, that is true. That is true. And here Paul is saying the believer is no longer under the law of sin and death. Not Lloyd's Bank, but the law of sin and death. Because when you're united to Christ, he takes on your condemnation, your debts, and you take on his credit, his righteousness. That's what happens when you're united to him. So the believer no longer under the law of sin and death. Jesus has taken our sin. We've taken his righteousness. So not condemned. Because Jesus has taken condemnation. Jesus has taken debt for you and for me if you're a Christian. You've been set free. Okay, that's the statement. Verses 1 to 3, if you're a Christian, you've been set free. Now the purpose, verses 4 to 11, here's the second thing, here's the purpose. Why has that taken place? The purpose, 4 to 11, is to live by the Spirit. So let's pick it up. He condemns sin and sinful man, end of verse 3. Why? Verse 4. Here's the purpose. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? In order that the righteous requirements, it's actually singular, but anyway, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Well, two things there. There's the objective work of Jesus. He was condemned for us. He fulfilled the law for us. He took our debts. We receive his righteousness. In that sense, the law is fulfilled. But it's a bit more than that. As well as the objective work of Jesus for us, there's his work within us. Because verse 4, the requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. This affects how we live here and now. God is at work in us here and now by his Spirit, if you're a Christian. And verses 5 to 11 explain that further, what that means. Verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. There's a real shift when you become a Christian, is what he's saying. The mind of sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor could it do so. Those controlled by the Spirit, sinful nature cannot please God. Paul is very simply saying there that you, when you become a Christian, you're under new management. No longer under the reign of sin and death, but under Christ. 
near where we live, there's a sandwich shop. And uh, for years, this shop has had the most bizarre, to my mind, slogan painted on the outside. Uh, I forget what it was called, the old, but it's uh, uh, sort of piccolo, it wasn't piccolo, but anyway, sandwich It was called something like sandwich. But the slogan was, sandwiches, made today, sold tomorrow. Now, quite a lot of their sandwiches are sold uh, wholesale, so they sell them on to, um, you know, British Rail or whatever, who sell, do sell them the next day. But you could buy over-the-counter. Their over-the-counter sales were never great. Because while that may have been acceptable 20 years ago, nowadays, we want sandwiches made today. Make them today, we want them made today. That's what we want our sandwiches made. It's been taken over. It was taken over about three months ago. New name, The Sandwich Man. Very knowingly, knew what was going on before. Now it says... Made today, sold today. Ah, that's what we want in a sandwich. It's very obvious, under new management, and there's been a shift. Paul is simply saying here, when you become a Christian, you're under new management. No longer under the control of the sinful nature, but under the control of Christ, Christ's spirit. He's not talking about subjective feelings. He's not, well, I'm a Christian and some days I feel like obeying Jesus and some days I feel like not doing that. He's talking about a fundamental change of direction. Before I was a Christian, my desires were selfish. I'm sorry to say that, but before I was a Christian, I lived for myself. What I thought was good for me, I did that, and so I walked in that direction. When I become a Christian, there's a fundamental change of orientation. Now I live for Christ. I don't get it right perfectly. Sometimes I sort of look around and, and, and serve, selfishly serve myself. But fundamentally, I'm looking this way now. It's different. I'm no longer governed by my selfish, sinful desires. I want to. I have new desires. I'm under new management. I want to live that way and serve Christ. Verse 9, you see, you are, however, excuse me, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. This is not about how you feel. This is true. It's a fundamental change of orientation. Now look, when, when you know that, that changes your future, which is verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Well, your future is guaranteed if you're under new management. Your bodies, well, they'll fade. They'll sag. They'll droop. They'll die. They will. Even if you're young. You don't stay young forever. It happens. Now, most here are relatively young, and, uh, and you know, it's hard for you to think of it in one sense in these terms. And not all, in fact, perhaps the majority have not seen someone they deeply love going to decline. Over the last year, I've watched my father decline terribly. I've uh, been ravaged by cancer, then round after round of chemotherapy. Wonderfully, he's in remission now and given a little, little longer to live. But he's a shell of the man he was. He was a powerful bear of a man. Literally twice the man I am in terms of physical 
chest, etc., etc. No, he probably wasn't literally 80 centimetres or whatever it is. But um, you know, he's a powerful man. He's just shrunk. And you think, golly, sickness, death gets everyone in the end. But, says Paul, but the Spirit will raise your mortal body again. The Spirit will raise you up if you're a believer again. It's wonderful. It's very wonderful. Statement, verses 1 to 3. You've been set free, purpose, to live by the Spirit, verses 4 to 11. You are under new management. Implication. That's where we spend uh, the rest of our time. You'll kill your sin. Okay, verses 12 to 17. Here's the implication. You will kill your sin. Verse 12. Therefore, given all this, now you understand what I've been saying. Therefore, brothers, here's the implication. We have an obligation. Here's something to do. It's not to the sinful nature to live according to that. You don't owe that nothing. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. So we have an obligation to the Spirit. And if we live by the Spirit, well, you will change. You will fight. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Now, verse 13 is a slightly, uh, I need to say, that there's both an obligation, it's something we need to do, but actually verse 13 is descriptive uh, rather than imperative. Verse 13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. So Paul is saying, if you're not a Christian... You won't really care what I'm talking about here. And you won't be bothered about putting to death the things you do wrong. You won't be bothered about changing. If you're a Christian, you will care about these things. You will desire, even if you suppress it at times, you will desire to change. You will desire to put to death, to kill off the misdeeds of the body, to, 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 to move on from your sin. You will desire to do that. If you don't have that desire, maybe you're not a Christian. Or something's really malfunctioning in your life at the moment. Because this is normal Christian living, he says. Christians want to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Okay, how do we do that? How do we, practically, what does that look like? Okay, verse 14, how do we do that? Well, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's interesting. To be led by the Spirit is to be a son of God. It's a funny old tension here. Paul says, Christian, you have an obligation to put to death your sin. You have an obligation to the Spirit to put to death your sin. You put to death your sin. And yet he says, verse 14, you'll do this if you're led by the Spirit. God. So it is both God's work and our work that he's talking about here. It goes together. How does it happen? Because it's not by willpower. So you sit there and think, well, actually, I am an intensely jealous person. Jealousy I'm conscious of is my presenting issue. I wish I could change my jealousy. How am I going to do that? 
say to myself five times every morning and ten times every night, I will stop being jealous. That's not going to work, is it? You can't just repeat it. You can't mantra yourself into not being jealous. You can't legislate yourself into not being jealous. Right, when I'm at work, I will never look at Dorothy over there because she always has nicer, nicer handbags. Or I will never compare myself to Brian over there who runs a marathon every day. You, know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, you can't do that. Jealousy pops up in different areas. Pass all the laws you want. They don't change people. Did you read this week? The coalition government passed over a thousand new pieces of legislation in the last five years. Uh, Did you read some of the more extraordinary ones? You're no longer allowed to wash your clothes in Trafalgar Square. That's a piece of legislation passed by the uh, outgoing coalition. It is illegal now to handle a salmon inappropriately. I don't know what that means. I just read it in the paper. (laughs) So you can pass... um, You can pass all the laws you want. They will not change. Paul says, here's how you change. Verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For, because, go on to explain to me more. For, because, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says, look, there are two different ways you can think of this. And there's a world of difference between the two of them. Verse 15, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. There's a world of difference by being driven by fear to being driven by sonship. Sonship, that's just because it's the sons who adopt, who were um, inherited first of all. Childship, uh, son and daughtership, you could equally translate it that way. What a difference between being driven by fear or being driven by knowing that God has adopted you. A world of difference between those two. Uh, when we were in the adoption process, one of the nicest books I read was by a chap called Russell Moore, American guy. And um, he tells, it's lots of good biblical uh, comment on adoption, but he tells their own personal story as well of him and his wife who decided they were going to adopt and uh, so they went through Dubrovnik, and uh, uh, they were going to adopt two children from an orphanage in Russia. And so they went through a bureaucratic shocker of uh, red tape to go through this, and then finally got permission and flew out to Russia to this orphanage, and it was miserable, a really wretched place. And so these two, they were adopting two two-year-old boys, and uh, through translators, you know, they said, I mean, it's just. They worked out what was going on there. There wasn't enough food for the kids. They were never taken outside to play. They were just left in their cots all day long. Miserable. So the uh, first thing they did, they bought some clothes. They, they changed the two boys. So then he describes it very movingly. They took, they were carrying one each, they took these kids outside. And at first, they, and it's the first time these two-year-olds had seen the sun. And they see the sun and they just scream and scream and scream. They put, you know, put hats on them and they sort of shield them, get them into the shade. And then the wind, and they're scared of the wind because they've never seen the wind and they put them in the car and the car door makes them burst out into tears because they've never been outside. Miserable. They fly them back and they get them back to the States. The really heartbreaking thing is he tells in his story, for the next three months, as they fed these two little boys in their high chairs, every mealtime, they'd take some food and hide it. hide it beneath them 
hide it in the cracks of the high chairs. Because they're so used to having to fight for their food. They were so used to that. It was very movingly. We knew that they understood that they were loved and they were ours when they stopped hiding their food. Those two boys legally adopted. But it took time for that truth to sink into their heads. Of course it did, they're two years old. But it took time. They had been trained to fight. They had been trained, you live by fear. Because if you don't fight for stuff, if you don't fight for your food, if you don't stash your food, you'll go hungry. And it took time for them to understand, no, we're in a different place now. We've got different people looking after us, a mother and a father. We don't have to fight. We don't have to be afraid. We can eat and be very confident that in a few hours' time, we'll eat again. But it took time, you see, for the truth of their adoption to really sink in to their heads. Now, he's writing about adoption, but he just suggests in passing, I wonder if that's true of the Christian generally. And of course it is. It is very true of the Christian. God our Father says to every Christian, every believer, live as my child, not as, my, not as a slave. You're not being given a spirit of slavery. Live as my child, confident that I'll provide with you. You don't need to be afraid. Don't have your life driven by fear. It's very different if you know that. And as we delight in our status as children of God, then we'll be motivated to fight sin. So think of it in practical terms. I'll just give you a few examples. Forgiveness. Someone is incredibly rude to you tomorrow. Just incredibly rude. Deeply unreasonable. Uh, it's in the office. It's in front of other people. Or, or your place of study. And just, uh, people, someone is incredibly rude to you. Now, if you're driven by fear, how do you respond? You retaliate. Well, I'm nervous now. I'm fearful. I'm fearful that I've been attacked. I have to defend my identity. I have to lash out. I have to prove to everyone else in the room that's not true. I have to prove myself. I have to fight if I'm driven by fear. Whereas if I'm confident that, well, I'm a child of God, loved by him, I can think to myself, well, that's unfair. That poor individual is very insecure to lash out in that way when it's not true. And you respond differently. You can forgive them. You can address the particular issue, but do so in a moderate, calm fashion. If you're driven by fear, you've got to sort it out yourself. You've got to fight. You've got to retaliate. If you're driven, well, you know you're confident in your sonship. Well, I'll respond appropriately, but calmly trusting my father. It's very different, isn't it? To be driven by fear or driven by your, your son. Or another one, like presenting issue for myself. Um, you forget someone's birthday, and it's a sort of someone special, you know, a sort of a parent, sibling, spouse. You forget someone's birthday, and uh, you know you'll be in trouble for it. What do you, if you if you're driven by fear, oh golly, they're going to think terribly of me. You can be tempted to lie. Oh, I'm so sorry. It must be lost in the post. We've all been tempted by that one, haven't we? Oh, I don't know, the postal system in this country. <laughs> um, uh, you'll be tempted to lie if you're driven by fear. If you're confident, I'm a child of God. God loves me. I'm, I'm safe in his hands. You can say, I'm so sorry. I got that wrong. I've really bogged it. You're driven by fear. You're driven by confidence that you're a child of God. And Paul says, 
You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear. You received the spirit of sonship. You know that God is your father. So what do we do? You've got to get that truth. You've got to get that truth in. Just like those little kids had to learn what it means that God would provide. If you just back up, I think verse 5 is a helpful commentary on our role. Halfway through verse 5, but, uh, but those. You see where I am? Verse 5. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So the role for you and me is, if we want to be transformed by the Spirit, is to set our mind on the things the Spirit desires. Is to dwell upon what it means to be a child of God, to be adopted, to be his. Now that means if you just allow those things to change you, you can be assured of God's love. A child brought up in a normal, stable home is not anxious that they're going to be fed. They're not anxious that there's going to be any clothes for them to wear. They just expect it. You know, there's a sense in a, in a healthy family, a child takes for granted that food turns up and clothes are there. Quite right. Quite right. And Paul would say, look, dwell upon your father. He's one who provides your needs. You can trust him. Be assured of his love. Be assured of your inheritance. You're not going to be disinherited. Again, in a healthy family, you don't think, well, will I ever get any money? Will I ever get any inheritance? You know your parents love you and will be reasonable and do what's best for you. Know that that's God is your father. And so you will inherit with the Lord Jesus Christ. You will with him. Be assured of his presence. God is there like a good father, listening, caring. Your parent, any parent of a newborn child, particularly the first newborn child, they put the baby to bed at seven o'clock, as Gina Ford tells them to do, or whatever. You put your baby to bed at seven, and, something, and then you go away and have your dinner, and then you pop back a little later. You open the door. You, you hear the baby breathing, and mum and dad go, oh. You're watching. God is your father, he's watching. Dwell upon the truths of adoption. God is a father who will provide for you, who will never let you go who is with you, who is watching over you. Dwell upon those things. Set your mind on the things that the Spirit cares about. You have to work it in. You've been set free to live by the Spirit, so you'll kill your sin. Look, when you know who you are as a Christian, when you know you're not driven by fear, but you're driven by being one of God's children, then you fight. Then you fight. You fight, verse 13, you will put to death the misdeeds of the body. Present tense, ongoing, that is, you'll never, you never win completely this side of heaven. And that's the reassurance that's here. Paul, I'm struggling with sin. Good, good, battle, fight, put to death, kill. Oh, you'll never be perfect. You have to keep on doing those things all your life. Battle. Be assured, that's good news. That is God's Spirit at work in you. And the more you understand how wonderful God is a Father, how He provides for you, you can trust Him, the less you'll be driven by fear and have to fight for yourself. Fight. Oh, you can take any example you want. Lust. I'm struggling with lust. What do I need to do? Well, I need to know who I am. God is a good father. 
He is not denying me pleasure. I'm fearful that I, well, I won't enjoy myself unless I have this thing. No, stop it. God is a good father who puts parameters in your place to protect you. He loves you. Know who you are. Dwell upon the things of the Spirit. Set your mind upon those things. Oh, and then fight. Practically. I will not watch that stuff because I know that that sort of stuff gets me excited in a certain way and I will not watch that. I'm going to watch these things that the Spirit likes. Instead, I'm going to set my mind on these things. I'm going to fight. I'm not going to rationalise my sin and say, wow, it's probably all right. I'm going to fight. I'm going to hate it. You can go on, you name the examples. Look, Paul says, you've been set free to live by the Spirit So you will kill your sin. And you'll do that more and more and more as you're less driven by fear, more driven by sonship, more driven by being a child of God. But you do also have to fight. It's a stupid example, but in our household, we, brackets, my wife in particular, but we are obsessed with moths. We do not want moths. You've had enough of clothes being ruined by moths. Now, that's not a big deal, really. You lose a jumper or two. You lose a jacket or two. It's expensive. It's inconvenient. It's annoying. It's not the end of the world. Whereas Paul says here, are you doing a fight your sin? That does matter. It matters. It matters for the honour of God. And also, it matters for your life as a Christian. You want to be killing sin. Because if you don't, well, sin may kill you. It's a sure mark of the Christian that you will kill sin. And the more you know who you are, the more you're driven by sonship and not fear, you'll do it more and more and more. So know who you are and kill your sin. It matters. Paul says. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are so good. You are the perfect, loving Father. Would we ever get more excited about that, about how good you are? Would we set our minds on the things that the Spirit desires? Would we set our minds on love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness? Would we set our minds on what's been done for us by Christ? As Paul would say to us here, if we want to be led by the Spirit, we don't just wait for voices to tell us what to do. We look at who we are because of what Christ has done. We're your dearly loved children. Would we know that so we're not driven by fear, but driven by your love for us as a wonderful Father? Knowing who we are, would we put to death the misdeeds of the body? Would we fight? We ask it in Jesus' name for our good and for his glory. Amen.